Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Why do you think that we have the ability to to do things better or whatever word you want to use there? The idea of, of a violent God and, and, and the idea of being violent ourselves. If you think of the Anabaptists four or 500 years ago, they were being murdered by the Protestants. They were being murdered by the Catholics. They were being you know, chased from, from home to city to city. And, and now, even though we've got a, a nation full of people who believe in a violent God, I don't think any of them would want to execute any of us Anabaptists as heretics now. I, I don't think there's anybody that would want to do that. That's a progression. That's a positive thing. So I think we are doing better. I mean, even think back 200, was it, we were talking about this in this class about duels, about just going out in fence and fighting, shooting each other because you had a disagreement. We try not to do that. That doesn't seem to be socially acceptable so much anymore. I mean, we might verbally go at each other, but even that, you know, and that, that's a whole form of violence that we haven't even touched on in this course, verbal violence. But in terms of actually trying to take someone's life because we don't agree with them or because they... They dislike, you know, I mean, you've heard some of the stories of people that have died in duels over colors, just ridiculous things that you would, you know, who's willing to die for something like that? So I think we're a, a kinder, gentler people overall. Yeah, even though I know we've seen some crazy, there's been some crazy stuff and, you, and people are saying some nasty things and mean things to each other that doesn't seem to be the thing we want to go and tear them apart or put them in a church and set on fire. But like, maybe I'm wrong. We could describe the opposite is that we live in the worst of times. Because now we, we have the capacity to completely destroy the world, and we are destroying the world, and probably eventually somebody's going to push that nuclear button. It just seems inevitable that that's going to happen. So I, don't, I like your question, Trent, and I, I don't know that, you know, I think we can describe the progress, but why? Why, is there, why has there been progress? We can certainly make progress in our own situation. One of the things that has made a huge difference just in terms of the world, and again, we're talking for our specific situation, is with the end of World War II and the bloodiest century in the history of humanity, people kind of stood up and started to wake up. And the dialogue between Christians and Jews and interfaith dialogue, it's changed. There is much more of a movement toward that. So people are talk, trying to talk to each other instead of killing one another. And I know we can think, okay, yeah, we've had... The wars today, though, and you think since World War II, since 45, they've been skirmishes. Yes, there's been Vietnam, but 70,000 Americans died in that, but nothing even close to the scale of the total war that we had prior to 1950. And so there's definitely this peaceable kingdom seems to be winning out in some ways. World War II and the, the, the Shoah, the, the death of 6 million Jews, I think that really got people talking and saying, how can we never again allow something like this to happen? Kosovo, Rwanda. <laughs> There were more people killed in the 20th century in wars than all of the previous centuries put together. So is it that as we get worse, we get better? First of all, I think that what we are describing in this class, I I don't know how you disagree with the description, and that is that we've put peace front and center, that it's a definitive telos, it's a definitive goal of who God is and who we are. 
And to fall short of that is a a measurement. Enacting the peace of Christ is the goal. We have seen how violence can be destructive of people's lives. I think that's becoming clear in terms of women, in terms of race. I think it's also a psychological thing. You know, this is kind of my area. I think that we can actually implement peace within and without in a way that we maybe did not have the awareness. And the way that I would describe this is that peace is a departure from law. Peace is a departure from notions of sovereignty, God's sovereignty, as being primary. Peace is a departure from the notion of a closed rational universe. Actually, I'm not saying anything different. God's sovereignty, a closed rational universe, the notion of an absolute law, I think the notion that we're encountering in the Old Testament, but also the notion that we're, the way that I would tell the history that we just read about, I just always do the same thing, even historically. That is, if we were to identify what's happened historically, there was a shift from love as the primary depiction of God to the notion, nobody went around using the word law, but they use the word freedom. In other words, freedom today, if you had to ask somebody what the prime category of the American value system, or maybe just the Western value system, it would probably be freedom. But again, I think that's just another way of talking about law. And so surreptitiously, I think we're always describing a departure from this law-bound, sovereign notion to the idea of love. Paul, could you elaborate a little about the the idea of the shift to freedom, what you mean, that the notion of moving from love to freedom? Is that, are you thinking like in terms of the Enlightenment? What, what just happened in the period that we're reading about with the rise of Constantine, that with the rise of Constantine, there is the picture of a different image of God. You know, Powerwas does, you know, the uh, watership down, and each little rabbit worn has a different value system, and that value system in some way shapes everything, but it's it's almost so pervasive that you don't see it. I can't remember if it's Howarwas or McClendon or maybe both of them use the example of uh, Spear, the World War Two, that Spear was the Nazi architect who was imprisoned for some 20 years. And after the war, you know, he, he described, what did I, what happened to me? You know, he's a good German, middle-class German guy. He had a loving family. He was a loving father. And he said, you know, I think that my problem was what my ambition was simply to be an architect. That's all I wanted to be. I wanted to be a great architect. And Hitler enabled me to be a great architect. And of course, he ends up building munitions plants and ends up being evil in his own estimate. I think that what he's describing, it's another version of Watership Down. That it is almost so pervasive that we miss it. And I think the shift that we're describing, and maybe I'm just always trying to reduce everything down to, to simple terms, 
I'll, I'll admit, I got a little bored reading about just war. There's only so much you can do with that, and obviously it's never working. You know, if you had to characterize theologically, in other words, I just wanted to say in a simple theological understanding, what was that shift? And I think it was the shift that is going to be named in Augustine that we're going to shift to the understanding of God's sovereignty, God's control as part of the essence of God. You know, as they're talking about just war, they're beginning to emphasize the idea that God is literally in control through the emperor, that God determines everything. With Augustine, we're going to get the doctrine of predestination, the beginnings of the doctrine that will eventually evolve into full-blown Calvinism, that God appoints and determines everything. There's a misreading of several passages of Scripture, and in the past we've we've gone through, we can give you the correct reading, you know, that predestination has nothing to do with what I'm presently describing. Predestination was the, the God has foreordained through Christ, but what I'm presently describing is that he predestined Constantine. He predestined an elect people. He predestined some people eventually, you know, this is the way this is going to work out. He predestined some to heaven and some to hell. Language is going to just become equivocal. You know, that we're, it's already becoming equivocal with Augustine, who is talking about that you can kill somebody lovingly, right? Because the body and the soul, you know, uh, uh, Augustine's Neoplatonism, so better to kill the body and save the soul uh, is the idea. And so this is going to be the attitude toward the heretics and eventually the Inquisition. They're going to literally torture people out of love so that this Neoplatonism, the dualism, is the prime thing, and the idea of God is that God wills everything, and you can't, you know, they're looking at places like Romans 9, chapter 9 to 11, that, you know, the pot, and again, we did the correct reading of that, but the incorrect reading that is going to rise to the surface is that, oh, God predestined some for destruction, and he predestined some for salvation. If God does it, it's good. Well, what does God do? Well, anything that happens, God is doing it. So God is God. You know, another way of saying this, Derrida actually says this about the law. The law is the law. The will to, to freedom, the will to power, this is actually Anselm, but it sounds a lot like Friedrich Nietzsche. If God wills it, it's good. It doesn't matter what it is. Instead of being God is love, God is pure, utter freedom. You know, if you're in the ruling class, I guess for somebody who that serves their self-interest. But I think what I've just described is pure evil. Just to make sure I'm tracking along with you, what you're saying here. A while back, I think it was you, John, and Matt were kind of talking about this, um, maybe in the Douglas Campbell discussion, but just this idea of freedom of like, so freedom in the, let's say the, you know, Calvinistic sense is this idea of God's providential nature over everything. Um, and because he's God, you know, we have, um, that's our freedom in him. Like, that's just the idea that's carried behind it, um, that it's God's doing and we can trust in that and believe in that and we're free in that. Or in a, the opposite sense of having free will that, you know, in order for God to love, like, 
we have to be able to have free will to make any choice, any decision always. But that still kind of misses the mark also where freedom's more of the idea that freedom is found in being bound to the law of love. Even using the word bound and freedom doesn't sound right, but being controlled in the love of God through the peace of God, you know, you can name all those things, that that's where real freedom is found in all these other things, like you said, are just more of a perversion or some sort of diabolical evil. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The freedom of choice, is that freedom? That's the, right. That would be the modern definition of freedom. That's like you're still bound by some kind of law in that. It, you know, this is Paul's depiction, you know, that to be free in Christ is to be a slave to righteousness. That sort of language may be grating on us. We don't, I don't want to be a slave. What would absolute freedom be? It would be that you would not be constrained by anything. Listen to what I'm saying. In what condition could any of us be where we have absolute freedom and we're constrained by nothing? I'll make the ultimate irony here. That's death, right? Because actually you are constrained by everything in death. But in other words, only the dead are not constrained. We're, we're creatures. We're finite. Any finite creature is constrained. But I would say the same thing is true of God. Can we say of God that God is not constrained by anything? That is a definition that we're all kind of working with. You know, and when I go to the grocery store, I want an infinite variety of choices. I want to see a billion cereal boxes there. I want Cocoa Puffs, Cocoa Puffs Light, I mean, that's kind of the way the system works. And so as long as we feel constrained, you understand I'm describing the devil's work here, that we want to break free of those constraints. And the way you break free of those constraints, anything that's constraining you, you know, you throw off those things that might seem to constrain you, any kind of relationship. In other words, any situation that you're in constrains you. And the way you free yourself from that situation is you get out of that situation. But then the next situation is going to constrain you. And ultimately, you die, and you're no longer constrained. In other words, what we're describing is deadly. Uh, it's just another way of talking about desire. But they're, they're going to begin to talk about God. This is not just American notions of freedom. That Augustine is going to define God's sovereign grace is his freedom. Let me quote from Augustine. To act beyond any external necessity whatsoever. In other words, God is not constrained by anything. To act in love beyond human control, understanding, to act in creation, judgment, and redemption, to freely give the Son of grace of God and the Spirit of God for salvation, to shape the destinies of all creation and the ends of the two human societies, the city of earth and the city of God. Sounds okay, you know, okay, God just constrains everything, God's doing everything. And so he, but he's beginning with God's freedom. He even says God's freedom to love and forgive, but he's putting freedom prior to love and forgiveness. He's free to save. And of course, he's quick to say that it works both ways, that God is also free to judge and condemn and damn. Who are you? you know, the, the pot analogy, a misreading of Romans 9. Who are you to question God? This is a Canadian scholar, Ron Dart, describes it. 
He says, Augustine took a position at times quite at odds with the Alexandrian Christianity of Clement and Origen. It is in Augustine that notions such as election, double predestination, God's sovereignty, just war. In other words, we're focused on just war, but I think just war is a piece of a larger thing that is taking place. God's willing and choosing reach a place and a pitch that has much in common with the God of biblical Judaism. We see in Augustine the return to a willing, choosing, sovereign God, not bounded by goodness or justice, because, you know, what is goodness or justice? Well, if God does it, it is good. Such a God could and would use his freedom to elect whom he willed for salvation and whom he willed for damnation. He concludes, this is not a God we can truly trust. This is Augustine, but of course, with Calvin, it's going to be even aggravated more because Calvin is going to say even evil and all the evil things that evil people do are predestined by God. And so John Piper explains to his daughter He's putting her into bed one night, and she prays, you know, Lord, we pray that you would be with the people and understand that they shouldn't blame God, you know, that God doesn't do evil. And John Piper has to take her aside and and explain, well, honey, no, he did it. (laughs) That he has to explain, you know, that everything that happens, God does. You know, when you start thinking of the evil things, this is the book of Job, by the way. This is the argument of the friends of Job, that God is just, and because God is just, the world is constrained by justice, and if it happens, God does it, right? In other words, it is a theodicy. Anything that happens, God did it. And Job said, wait a minute, you know, this is the, we think that Job may be the earliest book in the Bible, and Job is saying, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything evil. The point of the shift from having Christ as model is a shift away from the law's model. The right, you know, the a natural theology, I'm afraid we're just falling into the more of the same. I think we talked in the podcast about common sense. You know, everybody kind of set their Bible aside because they saw that what God was doing through Constantine was a kind of new thing that now God is working through history in a way that he had not before, and they did not need to consult their Bibles in regard to such things as violence. I'm stating this broader than it is because I really think that pacifism uh, survives all of this. So this isn't everybody or everything, but in the mainstream of Christianity that is handed down to us, I think through Augustine, and perhaps through the councils, I think we're getting an image of God in which peace, which was the constraining thing, or love, is no longer front and center, but they're going to start talking in terms of a kind of rationality, and even turn to a Greek philosophical understanding. I know that's not quite right. The the shift to just war the shift to common sense rationality, the shift to natural theology, the shift to Augustinian notions of original sin and just an Augustinian doctrine 
is all of one piece that is going to come out in the West in such a way that uh, it really amounts, you know, I really think that we come to a closed universe eventually in which law and God can simply be equated. Why did that happen? You know, this is your question, Trent. I just think that's what always happens. This is my explanation, that our fallback position is always law. And, and by law, you understand I mean everything. I mean the symbolic order. I mean language. I mean that in some way we want to extract from language itself the truth, or we want to find life in the law. I think this discussion of God's sovereignty is a case in point of the same thing. What you started with was um, the question, is it too radical to say that we can know Christ now better than the previous generations? You know, and we sort of sound that question for a bit. And I guess we're all coming at it from our different backgrounds. And you may as well be talking to John Piper here. I've read so much of that guy and of um, my whole framework for seeing through the through the world and theology has kind of been his basis for a lot of a lot of years and so for me like maybe in years gone by i would have been like yeah totally that is heretical because i thought that we get truth we get knowledge through scripture tradition and experience you know i, I mentioned to you i did that introduction theology paper just a very basic one and that's what they told us we know truth through tradition and the bible and this is our tradition and so rather than each of us independently going off and choosing what Christianity should or shouldn't be based on our own individual preferences and wills, we look at tradition to, to figure out what is truth and what is Christ and what, what is his plan for the world. So I'm just slowly turning the ship around and, and catching up, I guess, in a lot of senses. So I guess that's just me coming to terms with what you're saying and just catching up here. Speaking of John Piper, have you guys caught his son at all on TikTok? He has a son who's an atheist and absolutely just hammers his father's God. And it's actually quite funny. You just Google it and look it up. And it's, um, he's, he's pretty clever, too. He says some pretty erudite things that we probably, we probably have more in common with him than we do with Mr. Piper. Yeah, yeah. Dan, I, I think it's the same ship we're having to turn around. You know, I was not steeped in Calvinism per se, in fact, I thought I was an anti-Calvinist. But of course, what I didn't understand is, when by the time I got to Bible college, then they're teaching us penal substitution. Nobody explained, oh, that's right out of John Calvin. This thing has its hooks in nearly everybody. The penal substitution is just law. That's just, oh, the law is determinative of who God is and what Christ is doing. And I'm not throwing out tradition, but I think we cannot take any of this uncritically. And so that's the reading. I think we just have to look. We first of all, we first have to look at this is where Augustine is theologically. And this is the kind of shared understanding uh, that is going to come out of these councils. Whether it's a blatant mistake, I don't, usually I don't think it is, but I would go with J. Denny Weaver's point is uh, it's mistaken primarily in what is excluded. And if we're saying that love is front and center, would any, you know, how could you disagree with that? That's John is, you know, the gospel of John. That's the epistles. That's the one place that it says God is love. That really means something. That that is definitive. The way that I put it is that 
the law is relative to love. Everything is relative to love. That's what isn't that what we're learning in Christ? Christ says the the Sabbath is not created for man, but man for the Sabbath. He just goes through. I mean, that's the th- primarily part of his healing ministry. These people thought the law was the thing that was the controlling factor, and Christ is relativizing the law. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. We, this thing has a grip on us theologically, but I also think it gets its hooks into us psychologically. It's almost a natural, I don't know if that's the right word, but I think we fall back into this kind of thing, you know, like this is what Paul is describing, that as a Pharisee, as a good Jew, as a believer in the Old Testament, what he's describing is the law got its hooks in, in him in such a way that it was killing him. But he's saying that's not simply a Jewish problem, that's the human predicament. And so I think part of the way in which we can understand this better is to look back and see, oh, these shifts are taking place in which literally there is a kind of equivocation on, in the meaning of all these religious terms, love, righteousness, salvation. They're all going to come to mean something quite different by the time we pass through the Augustinian shift. Because I think the controlling factor in the, de- the definition should, is, is love, and that love then is relativizing the law. What we're describing historically is a degeneration. This becomes worse and worse. So that in the medieval period, volunteerism, same people doing volunteerism and nominalism about 1300 to 1500. And this is you know late scholasticism. And again, the focus is on God's freedom, God's volunteerism, that nothing constrains it. And it's uh, Henry of Ghent, Dun Scotus, William of Ockham. We're talking reason and rationality here, pure reason. And they're following Augustine. Voluntarism places God's will prior to his goodness. And the motive is a defense of God's freedom. In other words, we've got to have this view of God's sovereignty and protect that. And they expand upon the primacy of God's will, not only over creation, but also over God's own nature. God's will is primary even in God's own nature. And so this is David Bentley Hart does a lot with this. And he said, the voluntarists place an unprecedented emphasis on God's sovereign will as being the first and highest and primary attribute in God. This is taking place in really when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, unfortunately, is a development out of voluntarism. You know, I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't, I'm not saying that, but I understand that there is a sense that Protestantism, Lutheranism, Calvinism is very much a product of this medieval theology. And so it's a, a, a focus on sovereignty. They defend God's almighty power by making his will absolute. Think of the phrase from Nietzsche. This is actually a phrase out of uh, these people. God's will is absolute beyond good and evil. God does not command that which is good. That which is good is good because God commands it. That is, his will is not obedient to his nature as God. His will does not, does not follow from his divine goodness. 
His will is primary, not his goodness. And so God can forgive liberally without being bound to some law higher than grace, but God can also condemn individuals and destroy nations because he wants to, because he wills it. Uh, And to be omnipotent not only allows evil, it eternally permissively decrees it. Quite literally, they're going to assign evil to God. Calvin is going to take this another step. He said that in the sovereign will of God, all events take place by God's sovereign appointment. If it happens, God appointed it. There's no difference between God's permission and God's purposes. What he allows is what he commands, even evil. You know, thieves, murderers, evildoers, they're instruments of God's providence, being employed by the Lord himself to execute judgments which he has resolved to inflict. God uses evil to create, to bring about a greater good. I've said this, the idea of perversion or what a pervert is, the Apostle Paul's definition. I haven't heard you say it about what perversion is. Oh, good. I can say it in a... And it'll sound like I'm saying something different. (laughs) He says, he raises the question, is the law sin? If the law is sin, you establish the law by sin. He says, shall we do evil that goodness may abound? There's about four formulas in Romans. This is what a pervert does. You know, why does Pee Wee Herman, you know, he gets, I don't, do you know Pee Wee Herman, Dan? Yeah, I grew up watching him. Okay, so Pee Wee Herman, you know, at some point, he's a, he has a children's television show, but at one point he went up, went to the movie theater. He got up in front of the movie theater and he exposed himself. Why does somebody do that? That When I say in pervert, I mean literally a sexual pervert. But a sexual pervert, I think, is just somebody who's perverted by this understanding that we're describing. In other words, a sexual pervert is a case in point of perversion. That you service the law, you know, secretly what the law wants is true transgression or the one behind the law. And so the other behind the law, you know, it, it just gets crazy. That literally you sin that grace may abound. So I think Paul is, I don't think he's just given us these formulas by accident, I think he, he's saying this is the way that this works. You, you understand what I just described in Calvin is perversion. God uses evil that goodness may abound. According to Paul's formulas, Calvin is the ultimate pervert. He's the ultimate peewee Herman. And everybody who follows him, this is all of us in some way, we got screwed up. We got perverted. And I think our tendency is to establish the law, to service the law. Maybe it's the law of freedom. Maybe we don't know, you know, how this thing, what we might be calling this. But the idea is that you're, you're doing Paul's doctrine of perversion. This, by the way, appears in Romans 7, when he's describing how he split, that you got the law in your head and you're serving the law, well, what that's going to mean is that you're going to serve the law in one way in your head and another way in your body. And so you're twisted against yourself. So I think this is literally an explanation of bad theology, but I think it's also an explanation of what's gone wrong. It's a theological explanation. Oh, we're going to kill people to establish the kingdom of God. 
how do we obtain peace? Everybody that's, you know, killing people, they're killing people so they can gain peace. That's just war. That's why I guess I don't have a lot of patience for the whole just war thing, because it just fits one of Paul's formulas of perversion. How do you establish peace? Through war. I don't think that's the way you establish peace. In fact, I don't think we establish peace. I think God has established peace in Christ. What I'm saying is that there's only two things. There's the law and there is love. And what has happened is we've made law primary in defining God. And so I'm afraid that that's what's coming out. Eventually in these, maybe not early on in the councils, but eventually that's what's going to come out. They're going to try to figure out how God can be free. Uh, It's a wrong question. It's just the wrong question. By the way, my little formula there, you know, freedom is when you're constrained by nothing. This is Schelling in his description of the rise of God. You know, he's describing God was constrained by nothing, and he saw the nothing, and he desired the nothing. God himself is a pervert. That, that's a crude way of saying this, but I think, unfortunately, that's what we're describing. We're describing pure evil, and I don't think we should draw back from saying that. I, I think we just need to recognize that according to these formulas, the God that most people worship is evil. Nonetheless, I think, I think that even in a perverse Christianity, it's not that people aren't exposed to the love of God, and Tim was saying this, that, you know, even among our hardcore cow. Some of the best people I know, you know, don't necessarily have the greatest theology in the world. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. This type of thinking, it is a byproduct of a false understanding, and the false understanding then in making it a doctrine, it does accentuate our predicament, our problem. I think Christ came to save us from this mess, but what we have is simply a repetition of the problem. This is back to Calvin. The, whole, the devil and the whole train of the ungodly are in all directions held in by the hand of God as with a bridle, so that they can neither conceive any mischief nor plan what they have conceived, nor how had they may have planned, move a single finger to perpetrate unless God permits insofar as he permits, and he says, not even that, nay, unless insofar as he commands, that they are not only bound by his fetters, but are even forced to do him service. People are evil because God makes them evil, and they do evil things because God has them do evil. When an evil person or the devil commits evil, it is because the Lord not only permitted it, He commanded them and forced them to do it. Every act of terror, every rape and murder, every genocide or infanticide, every cancer and heart attack, every famine and plague are all in the service of God's ultimate purpose, that you would fear him and glorify his name. Hallelujah. That's terrible. This doctrine is going to perpetuate itself. You know, I don't know if you all are familiar with Oliver Cromwell and, you know, the Puritanism, that this is what's arising in England, that Oliver Cromwell in uh, Ireland, uh, he's going to kill off about a half a million people. He's undertaking this in the name of Jesus Christ. This is just a continuation of just war. 
Maybe it's a passage from just war to the kind of crusading mentality. Just war to me is just meaningless. I suppose there were periods in which it might have actually helped. But what we usually get is in the 20th century is typical. It had not occurred to people to bomb civilian populations. And of course, the Americans are saying, oh, how barbaric the Germans are. But of course, by the end of the war, the Americans and everybody, they've targeted the civilian population. So to me, just war, I suppose that it has helped when you have a common church that everybody maybe is under the control of. But even then, the crusade mentality comes into play. This is Jerzak. He says, I dare say the, the old Christian crusades and Islamic jihads continue to mirror each other wherever God's name is invoked and today in today's military conflicts. Prayers are offered and pleas for victory invoked with both sides calling on the God of Abraham to advance their cause in the name of freedom. And he, he raises the question, does God pick sides? Since he is all-powerful and in control, some see God as the ultimate mastermind, Zeus-like, standing above the fray, while simultaneously directing all the warring sides as pawns on a chessboard. I was just going to say, just on that, Paul, um, you gave a message last week or the week before about, about the tomb. Wasn't there something in there? And I thought that was really interesting how you, you tied, tied back the war in Kosovo to a 600-year-old wanting to guard the tomb or something. You, you remember that, the message you just gave a couple? Yeah, and yeah. even the idea of here's the, the three churches built on, the, on the, the supposed place where Christ was buried. That was a brilliant message, Paul. It was really good. If any of you haven't listened to it, it's, on the, it's up on the podcast. Did you guys hear it? Very good. I need oh, to read it. Yeah, the, the uh, tomb became the purpose of the Crusades to recover the, the sepulcher. So literally they made it into a tomb religion. But I was trying to say in that sermon, and maybe what I'm saying here, I think this is the law, the law of death, the law of sin and death. I think it's always the thing that has a grip on us whether it's the God's sovereignty, whether it's freedom, whether it's, I just think we're always working with the law of sin and death. It is the feeling that we can, first of all, you can set aside Christ. We really don't need Christ in this, you understand, because Christ is just going to interfere, because this is a thing that works in, a, in and of itself, that we can kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And of course, you can incorporate Christ into it. You can make him part of your system. And that's what's happened. But if we're going to actually make Christ the center of our faith, then we don't do what I'm describing. And maybe even the Old Testament is guilty of this. There may be, I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he's going through and critiquing the Old Testament. Because I think that that is the only alternative that people are going to conceive of God in terms of this law. And it appears occasionally, you know, in the Old Testament, the love factor in God. But I think that there is that tension in the Old Testament that Christ resolves, but he resolves it at the cost of his life. They kill him because the image of God that they have is precisely over and against the image of love that Christ is bringing. 
And so I think Christ literally dies because of the difference in the portrayal of God. Maybe you think I'm going too far with this. Isn't the Bible inerrant? Don't we have a perfect word from God? Well, if we did, why did Jesus say, you've heard it said? Why does he say, you know, he literally refutes the food laws? Why does he directly redo notions about the the Sabbath laws? He directly is challenging the law. In other words, I've just given you a definition of evil. And so I think his challenge of the law is a challenge of evil that is attached to this notion of law, that is a perverse understanding that would gain life through the law in one fashion or another. And I think Christ's challenge to the law is not just a challenge to the Old Testament law, it's a challenge to the law of sin and death because that's evil. Um, I think it was Michael Harden who said but that it was actually the law that was upheld in the crucifixion of Christ because he was a blasphemer. So the law actually killed him. And so everyone says, oh, but the law, it's God's law, and it's wonderful. It's all Well, the actual law is what, what killed God's son. And yet people want to say that it's just this wonderful thing, you know, the Calvin's three uses of the law and all that nonsense. But it's the very thing that cost him his life was breaking the law. I think that's it. I don't, I don't know that any denomination or any mainline church is going to sign up for this because, in a sense, I'm afraid they've all perpetuated the notion the constraints of the law. They want to create an institutional religion built upon this same kind of structure. I think we just all have to find our way as we can. But I think if we're going to find our way, what we have to realize is that, you know, when Paul says the letter kills, Hart translates that the scriptures kill. You could just translate that words kill you. In other words, if you're trying to capture God in scripture, in language, in law, that's deadly. And I'm afraid that the formulas, the doctrines, I'm not saying they're not helpful, but it doesn't give us Christ. Christ relativizes all of those things. I'm not, it's not a huge thing I'm saying. That's just the way we relate to everybody. We relate to people, and you cannot reduce people to their headstone some word about them or some description of them. It's a subtle thing that I'm saying, but I think it's just there in the Bible. I think this is a, a fundamental teaching of the Bible, is that our primary problem is, is our relationship to language. This sounds funny, but this is where the Lacanian stuff, you know, this is what they've recognized, is that what we would all do, we have the symbolic order, and that's one register, and then we have the visual register. And those two things are in some way pitted over and against one another. But we're always struggling, you know, between the law of the mind and the law of the body. Or as Paul is actually using language here of seeing and hearing, you know, it's always those two things. And of course, the point is we don't know people according to these registers. We don't even know ourselves according to these registers. But that's where we would ground our own personhood is in this symbolic order, in this law. But that doesn't capture it. That's not who God is, and that's not who we are. So I think it's a deep psychology that we're encountering here. And everything you've been saying, Snatter, that everybody's been talking about, I'm grateful for like my journey that I've been on. Um, I became a Christian when I was 25, and 
just got plugged into the restoration movement and ended up at a little Bible college where Dr. Axton was. And, but, you know, my second year in, you know, I'd be sitting in your servant and leadership training class or something like that. And you start talking about Jesus probably wouldn't be okay with us killing people and stuff like that. And I, you know, I haven't really been exposed to that line of thinking yet and wondering if it's okay for somebody to even be saying stuff like that, you know, about being Christians, which now looking back is just crazy to think about. But then even getting into like some of the the classes and the, you know, the apologetics and having more of the modern approach of having these systematic ideas and everything run down perfectly. So you can argue against this and argue against that. And I know you've said this before too, Paul, and there's a time and a place to maybe have some of those discussions, but I really feel like it was like drilled into me as a primary thing. Um, and even then, whenever we got into a life of Christ class, it was more about harmonizing the four gospels together as opposed to learning about Jesus as the writers revealed him and things like that. So then whenever I get to your apologetics class, Paul, I think it was probably my sophomore year, I got kind of frustrated because you didn't do apologetics. Like you didn't you didn't do the arguments, you know, you didn't do the all the atheistic questions and then come up with answers to them. We were we we're talking about apologetics witness as apologetics. You know, what does it look like? to see Christ and to follow him, to take up your cross. And um, there's more to it than that. And even just examining the gospels and following Christ is a very deep and a a soul searching project. But even in saying all of that, I feel maybe it's because I'm in a, a modern approach climate, but telling somebody, well, I'm more focused on learning about who Jesus is and what that looks like and how that can impact the world around me than having answers for all these questions or having the systematic theology down and having these answers for everything. I feel like I'm saying something wrong still. I feel like I'm I'm just giving up too easily and that I'm not doing the hard intellectual work that uh, more of a, you know, maybe a Calvinistic or any, you know, evangelical approach nowadays might might tend to push. And I feel like we, I say we, just what I've encountered in the church, we just tend to add too much. Like, I feel like we're doing what the Jews did back in the Old Testament. Like, they just kept adding. They weren't satisfied, and God's revelation wasn't sufficient for them. So they felt like they had to continue to add these things in order to be right, or whatever that looked like. Um, And I feel like the same thing is said today about some of our approaches to systematic theology, different perspectives on millennial views and like what all these things mean that we just feel the need to add more to something that's very simple and very pure and very beautiful in the Gospels and who Christ reveals God to be. I'm so grateful that I, like I said earlier, like that I am where I am now, but it's also frustrating looking back that like it took me this long and having somebody like consistently in my, in my life, like you and Matt and some of these other guys that um, it took me that long to kind of get to where I'm at now, where I'm starting to actually understand a little bit better what it looks like to be a disciple of, of Jesus. Yeah. Dan, I don't know if you know what Trenton might be referring to here in talking about apologetics. I only know that as like William Lane Craig style apologetics. Yeah. Like, yeah. He was, yeah, he would be the the best or the worst, depending on how you how you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the circles I run in, he's 
a good guy. You said it a while ago, Paul. I think you said something else referring to leaving Jesus out of it and some of these things. I feel like that's what happens in modern apologetics is that we have all these discussions, but Jesus really isn't found. I mean, we can talk about Jesus's tomb and his resurrection and proofs for those things, but in terms of the ethics of Christ and things like that, or just the personhood of who Jesus is, that's kind of left out because we have to do this. Well, we need to answer these questions and explain who God is apart from Christ, which is not biblical. Yeah, the resurrection is kind of an, a case, an interesting case in point. Because what is the resurrection, you know, in terms of apologetics? It seems like in one instance, people talk about, it, oh, it's a, an apologetic proof. But then most of the apologetics is engaged in proving it. But if you don't do that, people don't quite know what to do with the resurrection. Because for most people, it doesn't tie into their theology. Because dead Jesus does everything they need him to do. And resurrected Jesus is a kind of addendum. But of course, uh, you know, in the Easter sermon, that was my point. And the reason I may have sounded, the standard lesson that we use in the church there, they left out Easter. On Easter Sunday, they took the passage of the suffering servant in Isaiah. But that's fairly typical in, you know, people, everybody wants to talk about the resurrection, but it is not integral to their theology because the penal substitution or, you know, that's all, that's where all the action is. We rationalize. If it's not a proof, we don't know what to do with it. The apologetics kind of got me into this because my graduate work was in apologetics. And I went to Japan prepared to just, boy, you know, these people, they're not going to have a chance. And I feel so bad for what I did to people sometimes. I, I didn't know that I wasn't talking to anybody but myself. That means nothing to Japanese. And, of course, they're correct. They're right. That, that, that pertains to nothing. Uh, it has nothing to do with people. And it's ironic that what most Western Christians are interested in doing is having those kinds of conversations because the theology doesn't pertain to their lives. It doesn't pertain to reality in any way. Did you say Ravi Zacharias? Talk about about not pertaining to your life, right? You can be out there sophistry and intellectualizing and lots of wonderful, maybe some good arguments, but on the the rest of his life didn't really look like Jesus. Perfect example, isn't it? Yeah, and it's so sad. He's no worse than so many others, but he he may be in that his brilliance, he just shined, you know. But I think he never got out of that mode, that kind of modernist mode. In his own life, I don't think he understood how Jesus, you know, really made it, should make a difference in our in our lives, in, in our love life, in our sex life, you know, that there it all pertains. But it didn't translate, and for most people, it doesn't translate. That was my tragedy, was the apologetics. I went, and of course, slowly I broke down. And part of it was a deep engagement with Anselm of Canterbury. When you read Anselm and realize, you know, Anselm is all reason. It's all rationalism. But what he has to do in each stage is close the system. That's always what he's doing in his ontological argument, but then also in his Curtis Homo, why a God man. And once I saw that, I, I realized, oh, what Anselm is doing is what everybody's doing. And even today, you know, people defend Anselm. They say, oh, you know, I, I've gone through his stuff in pretty great detail. 
it's always the same project. It's always the same program. He's going to back you into a rational corner. I won't go into Anselm, but so the apologetics, Trenton, was for me. And that's why in the class, I spent a lot of time on the ontological argument. And I may just have confused everybody. You're playing this game, but I was trying to run down the game. It's a language game. And what he's doing is saying you can get God in language. You can capture God in the word. That's really, you know, actually you're cornering God it's very Lacanian in a sense because you chase God into this corner in your mind and he's in the place of the word. But of course the word he says is a singular word. It's not a multiplicity of words. What he's saying is this is an incommunicable word. It's so brilliant, but of course just so wrong. It, it, is, it is a deep psychology. I think he's doing, you know, this is why Rene Descartes is going to love Anselm so much. Because Descartes is going to chase, you know, I think, therefore I am. He's running down the same thing. You, you corner meaning in this place, but then the meaning escapes you. You know, it, it's the thinking thing and not the thought. And you can never get to the thinking thing apart from the thought. That's not me. That's Kant. But Kant sees it. He sees, oh, you need to posit this thinking thing. Well, that's already there in Anselm. It, it just repeats itself. That, this is why the Lacan, this is why Zizek, keeps referring to the to Descartes, I think, therefore I am, you know, that Descartes has spoken the truth for Zizek. And of course, what he means by that, the truth is a lie, <laughs> but you need this lie. And I think he's right because you're, you're positing personality, you're positing human personality. In that. The part of the problem here is to break down these apologetic arguments, even with William Lane Craig. Dan, I'd, I've done this somewhere on my blogs. I broke down, I do it with William Lane Craig and his Kalam cosmological argument. It, it's same thing, you know, he, he himself cannot be consistent with what he's doing in Kalam. He's going to back himself into a corner. You could, if you probably look at the dates when you were doing the, the, um, Imaginative apologetics course. Yes, yes. Seems yes, that a lot of times your blogs would kind of tie to what you were teaching. Let me let me close with a Mark Driscoll quote. This is terrible to close. I don't actually know who he is. I just know he's a. Pretty My brother worships the ground he walks on. Oh yeah, uh, but hardcore Calvinist, as I understand it. He said uh, in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I think that is exactly wrong. I think the, the meek and humble Christ, the, the Christ who comes to us in the New Testament, the Mark Driscoll Jesus is the byproduct of this history that we're doing. The Mad Max warrior kind of Jesus, the, the killer Jesus. Uh, but of course, in the, in the New Testament, Christ brought us grace and truth. Moses' covenant brought condemnation, but Jesus' covenant brings righteousness, true freedom, and transformation. And so rather than replacing Yahweh of the Old Testament with the Christ of the New, the idea is that Moses' revelation uh, as the judge, the law bringer, is eclipsed by Jesus' greater love revelation. 
And so the problem, part of our problem is the Bible itself. If we're not getting that we need to read the Bible through Christ, and Christ then as the center of this, we're, we're going to read it with Mark Driscoll. Maybe the concluding point, God's essence is not pure will. His essence is selfless love, and that's revealed to us in Christ. God's primary attribute is not freedom. God is, first of all, good. God's nature is Christ-like. We know who God is through Christ. God is cruciform. God is cruciform love. Paul, I just ask you, where were you quoting there when you were reading uh, from Brad Jersak and uh, Ron Dart? This is a more Christ-like God, a more beautiful gospel. What I tried to do for you tonight, the thing that I hadn't done for you in the class is give you the theology. No, it certainly helped. And I'm fresh off the boat of being surrounded by people who glean their hats on that, that um, whole story that, that circles around sovereignty, around God's planning and overseeing. And it's all, it's all within this term they use, his mysterious will. And so when you link back all these different symptoms to the same root problem, I can sort of recognize it and I feel freed and excited by the whole concept. Because just for this orientation to sin and death, this sort of prioritizing of sovereignty over a God of love and a shift to freedom rather than like the freed will to choose good. It's so saturated in what I'm coming from. And so to hear the alternative, a actually more loving and merciful alternative is, is really exciting. You know, I went through so much pain to get here. If anything else, I hope I can relieve people of this, the pain that, and struggle that I went through. I thought that, oh, the way you oppose Calvinism is through Arminianism. Arminianism is just more Calvinism because it's still grounded in that notion of sovereignty. You're still doing Augustinian sovereignty. That was a concept that escaped me. I, nobody ever said that to me. People just have this one notion of sovereignty and they have no vocabulary. They don't. They can't get a handle on it. And so, if we go back, you know, in the, I think it gives you a handle. But in the West, this is just the way it went. Well, I know we've got some really great books and references that we've been talking about, and of course, this course. I almost wish that there was like a a condensed guide on how to shift my perspective through all this stuff, and just like one reference point. Do you know if like, I I see you've written a book, or maybe what's the what's the best summary of this whole idea that you've seen like even um you mentioned in one of your podcasts that you'd struggle to find a commentary on romans that really actually hits the hits the button that's a challenge when it comes to biblical scholarship it's even more difficult because what you're going to get in commentaries on romans they're all working the same project douglas campbell is the exception but douglas campbell's isn't exactly a commentary it's just this huge volume that comes closest my book i'm never sure how accessible the the problem with my stuff dan is i'm doing the psychoanalytic literature um, one of the books I was thinking of, and I can't, it's, it's by Derek Flood. It's called Healing the Gospel. And have any of you heard of that? 2012, A Radical Vision for Grace, Justice, and the Cross. And um, I mean, it's a very accessible book. It's just called Healing the Gospel by Derek Flood. I mean, there's so many books being written now kind of along the same. Even people who are kind of moving along into some sort of Girardian understanding, I think it, for the most part, they're giving a lot of pushback against all of these horrible pictures of God. I guess um, I'm kind of familiar with some of the specific topics like atonement theories, 
images of God, history and what have you, but I feel as though there's a piece lacking that combines a few of them, particularly around what you're saying, Paul, this, this orientation to sin and death and the thing that seems to be running beneath it, what's actually causing it all. And so, yeah, maybe there is some grace-filled breaking down of like Christ and a, a more Christ-centered God like Brad Jersak, but Brad Jersak still doesn't actually um, nail exactly your flavor for what you're actually saying is happening. He, 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 he talks about one or two symptoms of the problem, oh. but I don't think he quite articulates the root cause. I, I like all these guys, but in pointing you to them, I'm afraid that they're not doing the, the deep grammar sort of thing. I'm doing it, but I'm doing it, you know, I'm doing it in Romans. I'm giving you a reading of Romans and using the psychoanalytic literature because I think it takes us to a depth. I don't know how else to get there. And so I think what I'm doing is a full biblical picture. I think that's really what's taking place in the Bible. And what I'm just calling the law of sin and death, I don't know. I don't think that registers with most people, but it, once you recognize death drive, where the, theo the theology has failed us, that's, that's what I'm really saying. Part of the thing that has happened with all of this distraction, you know, the bad theology, is theology didn't develop. It didn't pursue these things. And in the meantime, people stepped in that did develop this understanding. And I think that Freud, and I'm not Freudian, and so I'm always hesitant to go there, but Freud in his picture, The Death Drive, Lacan, they are doing something very biblical. And Zizek, you know, this hardcore atheist, I think he does it in such a way that we can see this is a world for people. And the only one who breaks this world apart is Christ. But I don't know if people are willing to read my stuff. You know what? If you read, if we read it with you, went through it with you, I'd I'd be up for that. I'll have to I'll have to steal it back from my friend. But it cost me like thirty eight bucks, so I want to get my money's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's think. Let's think in that way. I, I mean, whenever I would, still even today, but like in your classes, Paul, like it just took me a long time to grasp some of the language and the words and the ideas, and over time it became more attainable like that so i just feel like that's the natural progression in this conversation we'll be we'll be dialed up for week six week six next week next week we're narrowing Thanks, guys. it down hey i got i got my covid shot today number two or one first one the moderna yeah so. did you get sick no no not at all yeah i've had two now and oh you have yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm two different ones. <laughs> no. Yeah, I got the J and J and the Moderna and the, no. Just get them all. <laughs> I, no, I got the Moderna. I got two of the Moderna. So. Excellent. All right. See you guys later. Take care. All right, Tim. We'll see you. See you, folks. See you, Tim. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.